Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. This podcast is designed by a poker coach, Persuadio, for his own coaching students, friends of his, the backroom community, and anyone else who would care to listen in, which I would assume is most of you. We are glad to have you come along each week for this journey. You can find us at persuadio.nl or just do a search for Poker Zoo. I know some of you love to cook, and this week was a week of culinary adventures for me. At the end of each growing season, there's a small farmer's market nearby that uh, leftover jalapeno peppers ripen, turn red, and they can't sell them fast enough, so they put them in quarter bushel baskets and put them on sale. So for 10 bucks, I have two quarter bushel baskets of ripe jalapenos, and that translates into approximately 50,000 peppers. Uh, well, not quite that many, but... <laughs> seemed like that when I was destemming them and preparing them for the smoker. So I smoke them for about eight hours and then put them in a dehydrator, which basically then turns them into dried chipotle peppers. Every couple weeks, take a few of them out of the container and grind into a smoked chipotle powder, which is like a chili powder, only a deeper smoky flavor and use it as an accent, basically sprinkle on just about everything that I make. It is so delicious. I will have plenty to give away to friends and family, and if you see me sometime and say, I would like a few, I'll be glad to give you some also. This week we return to Our Roots. Uh, Persuadio interviews an old friend, our original guest on the podcast, an old pro, as it turns out, Greg Porter. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. This is Chris, a.k.a. Persuadio, and we are heading back to our roots. You know, this podcast has been going on for so many weeks now, it's hard to remember when it began. And our first guest was professional player Greg Porter, and I'm very happy to have him back on for an update and to shoot the shit about some important poker stuff. So welcome back, Greg. Thanks. Thanks. I'm happy to be back. That's good. Not not all guests actually sound real happy to be on. I, <laughs> I give them the little spiel and they're like, Can we, is this over yet? Yeah, but, you, uh, tricked, you tricked them into coming back. I know. I know. I, I, you're, you're, you're just easily duped, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> actually, Greg has a lot to say he's, he's, and he's accomplished a lot. But before we get to that, he's played professionally for some time now. And what we really want to know, is the new pro run good over? It is over. I joked in uh, one of the poker chats recently that I'm, I'm no longer a new pro. Now I'm a, I'm a grumpy pro. I've, I've transitioned into the uh, the grumpy pro phase where I, I hate the new pros. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds familiar. No comment on that. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what's been going on before we get into the meat of our discussion, whatever that might be, the mystery meat. Uh, what's, what's poker been doing for you of late? The last time I saw you, it was Vegas and you were killing the games. Uh, what's going on? Yeah, Vegas went well. And then, uh, I came back and I don't know, this happened around the same time of year last year. Uh, where I just kind of got tired of sitting in the casino all the time and, and uh, started playing more online. Uh, so I've been doing that. I've been playing in some of the uh, PPP club games and then playing a lot in the uh, Ignition Zone games. 
Wow. So I, th- I think probably what happens is I play higher stakes during the World Series in Vegas, and then I come back, and in Arizona, there's just nothing as far as like no limit type of games go. There's nothing bigger than three five. So sitting in those games and and seeing the fact that there's no room to grow, there's no room to move up stakes makes me think about the the long term and the fact that I want to eventually play bigger and, and don't have that ability in live games here uh, makes me start thinking about playing more online where that's possible. Well, that makes total sense. Tell us about your experience online. I think it's it's gone well. Um, it's I had a little bit of a rough start when I started playing in the zone games on Ignition. It's just a tougher pool of players uh, compared to PPP and the live games. Certainly, just more precise, uh, more aggression. It's it's a hundred big blind games typically, so there's not as much. Uh, room although there is in in a different sense because the opening sizes and the uh the bet sizes are so small on the flop that actually there is some room for play on later streets but it's still a a transition so i've been uh, working on sort of boring pre-flop stuff trying to have a more precise strategy to make that work but i think the the games are good i don't think that online poker is dead, as so many people like to say. Yeah, I keep hearing that, that the games carry on. Um, I've, I've noticed uh, some of some names have come up, some streamers, some people you've watched. Who are the, who are the players who are playing online that uh, you might have taken an interest in? Yeah, in, Invoker is really the, the main one. Somebody that I was aware of when I was playing on Global last year, he's, because he's a reg and he, he puts in a lot of uh, volume, and he was mentioned by uh, one of your previous guests, Alvin Lau, and so I looked into him again and, and started watching some of his streams, and uh, it's interesting because in 2019, in the current poker zeitgeist meta everyone is talking about solvers and and having this solver based strategy and he's someone who says that he's never used a solver he's he is just very good at recognizing patterns you know seeing what other people are doing and interpreting their strategies and then countering it so he uh, according to him, he doesn't even really study. He's just, you know, learning at the tables, picking up on what other people are doing, and then coming up with adjustments based on the his observations. Right. Well, he's dealing with the strategy game. Uh, the game is not played in a, inside the inside the calculator. But uh, t- tell us more about that, because that might surprise people. Uh, maybe it uh, was pleasing or displeasing to you. What, what have you observed in his play, and, and what can you sort of take away from it? Yeah, I guess in fairness to the the solver crowd, I guess, he is learning from these people. He is someone who's informed by, the, you know, the current strategies and, and people like Sauce, uh, Ben Solsky, and you know current video makers he, he so he understands the solver informed style of play but he is essentially trying to find spots where people are still imbalanced so like one of the things you see a lot of times people will say preflop has been solved and 
everyone knows their flop strategy, but there's still room on later streets. There's no one's playing perfect poker. Everyone has, you know, some sort of fundamental ideas about early street play, but there's still a lot of room for exploits on later streets because that's kind of where things start to get messy. Well, sure. But honestly, I don't even think people get the idea of GTO. Uh, You're not, playing a robotic strategy even pre-flop and even the slightest deviation creates ev outcomes that are different and which opens it up to somebody else doing something else and so you're always you're always in some sort of exploitative sense even if you think you're not isn't that so right yeah i think that's that's exactly right that's i mean one of the things i've said recently is that the gto doesn't exist because there's there's no so GTO just means an equilibrium strategy, but there's there's no for two players, but there's no equilibrium strategy without perfect knowledge of your opponents or you know the other players' range and strategy, and there's no guarantee that they're going to play whatever equilibrium you understand. They if they choose to say in in your solves you've got well, I, I bet third pot and they're allowed to raise to three times that, that amount when they check raise. Well, if they're going to play some sort of different strategy, if they're going to check raise to 5X or if they're opening a different range or three betting a different range than you're looking at in your, your equilibrium, well, now everything goes out the window. The, there's no guarantee that your opponent is going to comply and, and willingly enter into that that agreement to play that strategy. And yet I think a lot of people are trying, we're trying in some subsection, subgroups of the community to sort of agree to play this way, right? Right. Uh, I mean, (laughs) yeah, it's silly. I mean, there's, there are things that, that we've, or, you know, the community has learned from Solver that I think improve uh, people's understanding of the game. Like there, there are advantages to, to betting small on the flop, you know, in a single raised pot or a three bet pot or a four bet pot. But that doesn't mean that's what you have to do. There are also advantages on different boards and different formations to, to betting big. It's not as though suddenly we figured out that, that, Oh, we just bet small and, and we win. Right. That's, I think a big confusion for for people who are, especially the people who are just following trends, uh, that can be a danger. And because they forget, they have such a short memory. There's always been a trend. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, like Seidemann talked about in his game dynamics chapter, I think that came up in one of the recent podcasts. And I, I went back and looked at that, looked at that again. And he, he captures it pretty well. There's always, you have to be aware of the trends and, and considering why they exist and and how you're going to counter them and and whether or not there's something that you want to employ or whether or not or whether they're just something that you want to try to exploit. Yeah, and I can say this all without poo-pooing, so to speak, uh, the GTO stuff at all, right? It's not a contradiction. I'm just observing something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, it's very. I think that's very confusing to people. I don't. I don't want to dwell on it, but. Uh, there it is. If you don't like that, tough. <laughs> uh, but I, I diverted you from your actual point about Invoker and maybe some of the things you like to do, which is a deeper post-flop play. Um, did you want to 
comment on that? Uh, what are you seeing? What are you doing out there as you continue to refine yourself as a professional? I guess trying to find more spots to turn what might seem like showdown value, like marginal bluff catchers into bluffs is, is one thing. I, I think one of the limitations of solvers is that you can't, you can node lock a current street to say, what happens if my opponent C bets this flop too uh, frequently? But what you can't do is say, well, my opponent doesn't value bet the river thinly enough. So now how do I shift the construction of my range from the flop forward? There's just no way to node lock every possible turn in river card. So you have to, uh, unfortunately, uh, use your brain and and sort of infer from later street mistakes that your opponent might make what your strategy should be on earlier streets. So if my opponent isn't going to to bluff catch bluff or bet thinly enough on the river, do I really want to be check calling multiple streets with bluff catchers or do I want to be taking those hands and doing something else? And if they're not going to bet thinly enough when checked to on the river, maybe that means I should bet more thinly on earlier streets as well. And you can't like, you know, painfully go down one branch of the tree and resolve for a bunch of node locks and exploits. I mean, there's just too many possible turn and river run out combinations, I think, to, to make that work. As far as I know, it's it's not possible. Are you saying on air today that you still <laughs> have to think in poker? It's sad. It's, it's, it's uh, yeah, I guess maybe that's part of what's making me a grumpy pro. I, I just want to note that it's my guest <laughs> saying this, not me. Uh, be sure to send all hate mail to Porter. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's fun, and watching people like Invoker and and the the the, the big, you know, I miss Global. Um, I got banned from Global, kind of upset the customer service people. I can be a little uh, disagreeable at times, <laughs> but it, but it doesn't matter because they um, they got rid of people in my state anyway. Uh, so I, I'm I'm playing on Nitrogen with some Bitcoin dust. And uh, I'm playing on the PP games a little bit. But you mentioned a little bit about Ignition, and a lot of people do play on Ignition. It's different because you're anonymous, right? Right. And, you know, it's just a different environment. Could you speak a little bit specifically to Ignition, which I've kind of forgotten about? Right. So they have everyone's anonymous. There, and then there's two types of tables you can play in just like a regular ring game uh, where, you know, you said, uh, six max. They do have a, a good system. I think of you choose the stake that you want to play, and then you get randomly seated at a table. So you couldn't, for example, uh, go and look at a bunch of tables and try to find. You can't bum hunt essentially. So that's one option. And then they have the zone games, which are like uh, Poker Stars Zoom, where you're. It's like a fast fold table. Once you fold your hand, you um, you get reseated at another table immediately and into a random position and dealt a new hand. So you, uh, it goes very fast. And if you play two zone tables, you're going to see, uh, upwards of 300 hands an hour. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, that's an adjustment. Uh, just seeing so many hands that quickly is kind of, uh, can mess with your head because the swings are much, uh, I mean, compared to live, it's just, you're, you're seeing so many hands. There's a lot can go wrong and a lot can go right very quickly. 
Now, do you find, um, and we'll get we'll get back to that getting a lot things getting wrong quickly. Um, but do you find that the actual the equilibrium that is sort of being naturally, almost subconsciously sought by the strategy of the game, really does sort of happen in these environments. I don't think so. I mean, there are a lot of regs, so you're seeing some of those similar strategies frequently, but there's a, a good mix of casual players that are limping and cold calling raises from oh. middle position and, and the cutoff uh, with wide ranges and a lot of small blind flats, which I'm not sure it is sort of influenced by pluribus and high stakes. Uh, and I, in my opinion, misinterpreted and not as viable in small stakes games where the rake is too high. Uh, but yeah, there's still, uh, it's not just like a hundred percent reg battle of, of people using the same strategies. I don't think. Let's get super technical for just a second. Yeah. Flatting from the small blind sounds a little unusual. Uh, what kind of hands are you seeing there? A lot of, uh, offsuit Broadway hands, some hands that, that make more sense, like like the weaker suited broadways and suited aces that, that might not want to three bet earlier position and middle position opens some pocket pairs, but it does seem to be more weighted to, to hands that shouldn't really be cold calling like the, the broadways and, and smaller pairs. Um, but yeah, it's still not, I, I guess, probably based on the player pool and those players that are flatting the wider ranges, uh, not uh, high frequency. It's probably just concentrated to fewer, fewer players. And do you have an intuition or, or even a database of those flats, you know, meeting their profitability um, minimum, which I guess would be better than negative 50 BBs or something per hundred? I uh, haven't tried. I, I do have a database. Uh, I used one of the small blind cold calling r ranges from uh, the, there was that, that guy that quit poker and posted a bunch of ranges uh, in Reddit. And I, I used his uh, small blind cold calling range, but I don't know that I adjusted it for the, uh, the rake to see which of those hands could be profitable. I don't think it includes a, uh, any of those offsuit broadways, it's mostly uh, the stronger condensed range. Okay. Interesting. You know, that's, you brought up something that is kind of fun. There was, I'm not a big Reddit guy, but I did happen to come across that very same bit about uh, sort of a burnt out pro. I read it as sharing some research on optimal plays. Uh, what did you take away from that thread? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, as I looked at some of his ranges and I mean, some of the ones that he was saying that he used himself didn't seem that great to me. Uh, one of the things, so I, I have some of the preflop solves myself. And one of the things I've adjusted for lately uh, in the ignition games is using ranges that are, are quite different from those uh, in order to 
taking into account something that the the solve doesn't, which is that I'm going to face more of those calls from the field in, in these games and more calls from the small blind. So that people aren't playing three better fold as often. And so I want hands that are more playable rather than uh, some of the hands that, that these solved ranges include less of the, the suited Kings and more of the, the suited connectors and small pairs. Yeah, getting back to the the Reddit post specifically, it might be the case that that the games are are too tough in Europe, where I assume that guy, like on Poker Stars in Europe, where that guy was playing, to try to to grow from the small stakes. I think it can also be the case. I think there are a lot of very smart people that come up with very good ideas about poker strategy that just aren't cut out for the mental side of things uh, for uh, poker is unique in that you lose so often uh, compared to other games of skill. And I, I don't think that everyone can handle that. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it could just be that he got burnt out. He, I don't think he really, uh, or at least I don't remember that he gave specific reasons for why he was quitting other than, you know, he was still after years, sort of in the the mid stakes yeah we can we can have fun speculating about that but let me postulate one thing that's really big for for poker and i bring it up so that you can speak to it and that's in-game execution which is a little different from just the theory Um, you have to be able to make adjustments against your opponents and that is really really hard for a lot of players. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah. I mean, I think it's one thing to, to know the right strategy on paper and another thing to make the decisions in game. One of the things that I've, I've been read about recently, a book about intuition and decision-making it sort of talks about basically a, a, some studies of, of decision-making under pressure, uh, with uncertainty in in complex situations, and that essentially the approach of most uh, teachers in fields is wrong, and that they they preach memorization and uh, procedures rather than developing intuition, which is what these expert practitioners actually use in their decision making in the moment. Um, they they don't go down a checklist, but instead they are able to recognize cues and uh, adjust in the moment in order to make the best decision. Right. And we're not talking about looking their avatar in the eye and asking if they have it or not, right? You're you're talking about actually fairly precise decision-making, but using uh, the sort of intuition that will speed up the decision-making process. Am I right? Or are you talking about something else? No, I, yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, it, there, I think there are many more of these cues in live poker because you're sitting there with other people, but they, they still exist online, you know, different just nuances in bet sizing or or checking boards that, that would never normally be checked or betting boards that, that shouldn't really be bet at any frequency and, uh, you know, timing and, and things like that that an expert 
who who has you know a lot of this intuition is developed from experience and so uh, someone with significant experience is going to have a better ability to to recognize those cues but then a lot of them uh can be a lot of intuition can be developed away from the table uh, as well um but it, that's you know given that you're taking the right approach and not simply trying to memorize a strategy all right well Sounds like it's a dangerous world out there. How are you doing in these games? <laughs> uh, it was a little rough at the start, but then uh, the last week or so, it's been going really well. So the the PvP games in general have gone really well, although I haven't put in uh, a ton of volume. I, I've played uh, higher stakes on there, and it's gone well. But yeah, the the zone games on ignition. I think there's a bit of. Uh, I just I knew in the beginning that I just was gonna have to give it some time and get some experience playing in that pool, and then my plan is to aggressively move up and then move over to to global and play higher stakes there. Okay. Now tell us just a bit about the the PP club games because I mean isn't game availability kind of a problem or have you solved that are you are you in the right BlackBerry patch now? <laughs> uh, it seems like it. I mean I've seen there's there's a decent amount of five ten running and then I saw some ten twenty running the other day. I still have uh, sort of some qualms I guess about playing on there one the rake is just absurdly high so mm. i am not as willing to battle it out with regs as i would be in a in on global or on ignition um they're taking even even at high stakes they're taking five percent up to three big blinds so i think like one of the sessions i played of 510 i i looked afterwards to see how much was raked during uh the game and it was like I, I don't remember uh, close to a thousand dollars. I think at least over eight hundred uh, in a relatively short amount of time. I mean, like two two hours or so. Uh, so that's that's tough to overcome if you're if you're not playing in a really soft game. And then one of the other things I've just poked around online, and there's some concern about uh, bot rings playing in these games. And uh, lately in the club that I'm in, there's been an influx of players that have no screen name, uh, default avatar, and somewhat similar stats to one another. Oh, and no. they they seem to play relatively well, too. So, uh, yeah, that's yeah, it's a concern as well. It's, it's not so much that I I worry about my strategy against the bot strategy. I mean, I, I would think that I would do well enough but just having those players having bots in the pool is bad for the pool because they're going to play better than the average player for sure and then they drain the pool of money and then the games die so right i mean these things are supposed to be like you know mini home games kind of i mean it's a bit not it's a bit of a stretch of an analogy but you know you're not supposed to have bots in there Right. Yeah. You, you would hope not. But I mean, I, I don't know who would be behind it, if it would be the club owners trying to start games or if there are, you know, people in some other country that are just uh, willing to have a lot of these bots play and grind out a couple couple of big blinds per 100 and make some money in the aggregate or or what the uh, 
story is there, but it's just you're in these games that are totally unregulated and they have no oversight at all. I think it's always good to be concerned about collusion and bots. And it's just something else that you have to worry about that I don't think is not a concern at all in the ignition zone games where there's no real opportunity in an anonymous pool where you're continually reseeded to, uh, to collude. But then uh, even on global, you know, one would assume that there's some oversight there for the site trying to protect itself. Then that's not the case on PPP. Right. I mean, and I just want to make sure because it was this very, it seemed to me like a foolish article that came out on 888 a while back, kind of reassuring people about bots and maybe just kind of get over it and play with the bots. Isn't the bot really not the problem, but the collusion between the sharing of information between a ring of bots? Yeah, I think that's that's one possibility. I mean, if they they get uh, if they're seated at, at a table together, then then certainly you would expect them to to build that in and take advantage of that. I, I have read that that in Hold'em that two people at one table sharing cards is not doesn't add a significant edge. So I, I mean. I wouldn't choose to play with two people sharing cards knowingly, but <laughs> let us know how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Go I, th- I think the, the bigger problem is just that it's, it's bad in, in that these, these bots are able to play continuously and just slowly drain the, the money from, from the player pool um, rather than having it sort of a, a natural, uh, ebb and flow of, of the money from the the casual players to the to the professionals and the, the serious poker players. Well, it doesn't sound like the bots are necessarily taking all the money. It sounds like the owner is if the rake is. <laughs> yeah, well, right. Yeah, it's a, a little uh, it's just like an added rake. So the three big blinds plus plus an additional bot rake is definitely not going to be uh, something that you want to play against. I mean that's I mean that's a little outrageous. Which reminds me, if you're listening, come join us on our PP game. Seems like a good moment, right? Yeah, there's, uh, there's no bots there. No there's bots no bots there. there, and the rake is like actually play pretty tiny, and we play for um, for practice, but we play super deep, uh, which probably different from the games you play. I take. Yes, uh, much different. I mean that that's one of the things that makes the our games I think so fun is is playing really deep and it's a good uh, simulation for for what it might be like or what it is like playing you know five ten or, or ten twenty uncapped against people that are five hundred big blinds deep or, or more and in, in situations that you might face against uh, aggressive opponents. Like real, actual, dangerous players, very deep. And this is a good segue because, you know, you're not just playing, you're dabbled in poker coaching. Give me some of your impressions as a serious player of some of the good things and bad things that the players are doing in our TBRPP game. Um, You play with them now almost twice a week, probably regularly, so you see a lot of things. Um, you, you, you're a studying player and you play in some tough games. So I think this would be a good moment for you to make some observations for us. Sure. I think uh, I'll start with the mistakes first, I guess. I, I guess I see a lot of players trying to make 
trying to use hands that, that just don't work deep stacked uh, starting preflop. You know, the deeper the stacks, the more you want hands that have robust equity and, and the more implied odds comes in reverse implied odds come into play because there's so much depth and there's going to be so much action on later streets and trying to make some of the the weaker offsuit hands that can only make uh you know the rare two pair or a weaker top pair are just not going to to be profitable on later streets, I think uh, I don't see enough overbetting on on any street. Probably uh, on average, uh, in in our small player pool, these 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 implied odds and reverse implied odds that are so important, deep stacked. I mean, part of the reason they can come into play is because you have the ability to make very large bets uh, on later streets at 2x pot 3x pot or more and and that's i don't see that very often or not as often as i would think is appropriate and then probably uh too many unprotected checking ranges um and then conversely too many uh merged bets for value that's that's too thin that that should probably be in the checking range not enough uh, i guess going back to preflop not enough uh for betting and in response to to some of the players in our games who three bet at a very high frequency to, to not enough for betting to to counter that yeah what else uh i guess let's see some of the things that that people are are doing well I guess I, I have seen uh, a lot of good construction uh, on the flop and the turn of, of people that have robust equity hands that can improve on later streets. Uh, things like uh, pair plus flush draw um, or, or other sorts of uh, combo draws. Yeah, I'm not sure what else. <laughs> Don't go out of your way to compliment people. <laughs> Um, I think you're very right on, on many of these things, and you know, and it's it's certainly not going to help me if people figured out that they should be forbetting a lot more against me in particular, um, and so certainly against some of the other players. Probably they should be thinking more about position when they do so, also because people, you know, it's it's one thing to see. So Fausto sort of alluded alluded to this in our last podcast. You see a spot, but where do you end up? And you have to see sort of all the variables and kind of walk and chew gum, as I say, when you're going to um, do some of these things. Now, no comment as to your playing unplayable hands. Look, buddy. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Sometimes, you know, you, you've got you've to mix it up and keep the VIP happy. It's true. Well, I mean, also, <laughs> in your defense, uh, as you've said before, exploitation is ugly. And so if you have a, a player who, who has a tendency that you're aware of or an exploit that you're aware of, then you're allowed to get far outside the box. So that, that's something that I've tried to do more of, um, you know, rather than I, I spent so much time looking at these solved preflop ranges for both the hundred big blinds and, and 200 big blinds that I started to 
put myself in the box of those ranges rather than uh, accept that when other people are breaking the rules, I get to break the rules too. And so it's important, I think, to, to not hold yourself to some sort of pre-formulated range when you have additional information that's not uh, included in that range. Or at least it's possible to do so, you know? Right. People right. spend so much time and, you know, in like sort of lower level poker forums, I guess mostly poker forums are kind of lower level by nature, but let's just say a lot of players who are starting out and they love this word exploitation. I'm like, I'm going to exploit this guy, you know? So I've got ace jack and well, I can't raise that. And, you know, or I've got ace three off. Well, you know, I can't three bet this now, or I can't four bet this now. It's not my four betting range. Well, then how are you exploiting them? other than by over-realizing some equity. Um, of course, you earn more EV when you have a really nice preflop range, but if you know where the game tree is leading, isn't the whole point to show up and kind of be ahead of them in some sense? Right. I don't know. Seems, seems relevant, because I'm going to bring up, we're not going to do, Greg's not going to bring me a hand. Uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about, and, and we've even rattled off for half an hour already. But I'm going to bring up a hand, and it's not because I, I really want to go over the strategy of it so much, but we can sort of talk about it anyway. But for kind of bigger concerns, kind of meta concerns, and I don't need to go through all the details. Basically, you know the hand I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It was 500 deep, and the small blind three-bet the button, and they saw a flop, and it went you know, half pot bet, large bet, and then like bet raise shove so a ton of got money got in in other words a lot of big blinds with uh, the in position player with a middle flush and the out of position player with the nut flush blocker well we run through some comments in the uh in the forum this you know this podcast is about our forum it's about our students i know it reaches a lot more people but we also got people actively studying and trying to win and uh you know, one of my friends who hadn't been in the forums for a while, we'll call him Mr. Handsome. I'm not going to name him. I don't want him to be uncomfortable. <laughs> but Mr. Handsome comes in and just blows up the chat with some really strong things to say about how poorly the small blind played. And I kind of disagreed. But I wanted to give you an opportunity as a professional to talk about this hand if you want to. And then I want to say something about it. So sure. what, did, what, was your, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah. Uh, so the out of position player, I mean, they, so I think they start by, by deviating from what I would say is, is a good strategy uh, just right off the bat preflop by, by three betting a hand that, that doesn't need to be played. But I think the reason for the three bet is because they have certain expectations of the way the, the button is going to play on later streets. So Right away, they're deviating, but there's there's a, a reason behind that. And then, you know, I think that uh, a lot of people in or, or at least this particular Mr. Handsome is sort of misevaluating the strength of this hand and the way that it can function post flop where it, it flops this this nut flush blocker it you know the flush is just a flush draw on the flop but it also has an overcard it also has a backdoor straight draw and it was also ha well it has really two backdoor straight draws a backdoor to broadway and a backdoor uh wheel 
and then also has an overcard, which, you know, even though this is a, a three bet pot, it's there's significant depth and the player in position should have a, a very wide range here, even facing the uh, 4x uh, three bet preflop. So that that top pair out is is not. I mean, they don't want they're not going to win a big pot with it, but it's still uh, it's still relevant to the uh, it still adds equity to the hand. And then. Yeah, on the turn, the 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 out of position player now has uh, the 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 nut flush blocker when the flush draw completes, and they uh, they turn now a gut shot, a, a draw to the wheel, which also adds equity to their hand. And so I think the hand is the merits of it preflop are debatable, uh, you know, in a vacuum without any ideas about how uh, they're going to be exploiting the, the button post flop, but then the merits of the hand, uh, the value of the hand and its equity, I think is much more clear, uh, post flop and, and the way that it can exploit this player who might, I mean, my, uh, sort of intuition from the hands that I've seen this player, uh, play in the games. And from this hand is that they're, they're very likely to value bet too thinly. And then that, that offers uh, equity that can be denied, you know, certainly with a hand that, that blocks so many relevant, uh, strong hands the you know, the top of this player's range is, is blocked. And that also has equity. If the other player does have a hand that can call, uh, a shove on the turn. Yeah, that that sounds really good. And and knowing the button, I think that's a pretty spot on evaluation. He'd been caught thin valuing uh, multiple times, and since the small blind had position on him, not in the uh, not excuse me, not position on him, but in the game, you know, he was directly to his left. Um, I think that the small blind was actually like three betting him maniacally. <laughs> Just uh, yeah. If I, if I remember the, the small blind was three betting almost every uh, opportunity specifically from, from the blinds uh, when this player opened. Right. And they had 500 big blinds. So this, these investments sometimes are very small compared to what's at stake. And if there's some mistake going on in your game and you're playing this deep, well, you know, you told us about on the very first, podcast i think or maybe maybe it wasn't on the first podcast but you talked about playing with some very dangerous players very deep at the 510 win well it wasn't your 40 dollar open that you were concerned about it was being out outplayed when you had 400 big blinds in front of you right mm-hmm. right like, if i'm playing this limited number of hands and i fold out the winner um, or if I am not doing something that's going to maximize my EV versus what they're doing, we're just losing. <laughs> and we almost can't even play in this game. And so the stacks end up mattering so much more than, than people um, expect, or, or, I think. And just to not to run on, rattle on too long, but it's not that, you know, if you're a, a solver-based player that, you can't prepare for a 500 big blind game. I mean, that's kind of wrong. I know that's sort of been stated by some people, but it's that you are executing here and your mistakes start to compound massively. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that that's right. And things, even though you can uh, somewhat prepare and things might not change so much on, on earlier streets, there's just more, uh, 
in solver terms, there's more n nodes on, on later streets. I mean, there's not in in shallower games. There's just not very much room to you know bet three bet the flop and then still have enough uh, to to bet two more times on later streets. And there's not enough room to you know maybe get three bet on the river when you're you know a hundred or two hundred blinds deep. Uh, as there will be uh, on these later streets at depth. And, and those are, you know, these deep nodes are, are not, you can't memorize. It's hard enough to memorize and, and, and learn strategies for every, you know, the later streets at a hundred big blinds, you know, not to mention how hard it would be, you know, when you're 500 big blinds deep and there can be multiple bets and raises on the later streets. Yeah. And there's just so much going on, and it gets back, and I, I love this hand in a way because it gets back to some of the things you were talking about earlier. This, the sensitivities of what's good here on the turn, the sensitivity to what the button has and what is in the small blinds range really dictate whether you can have some sort of absolute opinion here. There, there are probably solves where this turn should not even be bet, and mostly because the ace of hearts retains its value against the continuing range of the button. And as Mr. Hansen pointed out, a check raise might in fact be better. But that's a form of polarization, just as the overbet is. And so I can't imagine that there's not some minority action where this player's turn bet makes sense. And, and I think I looked briefly over two scenarios, and indeed, in one there was a that called for it, and another it didn't call for it. Do you want to talk about the turn in terms of that, or should we just move on? Uh, sure. I guess just quickly, I would say that I think one mistake that that people often make in looking at a hand history, and, and that maybe Mister Handsome makes in, in looking at this hand, is inferring from the way that one hand is played that a player is playing a pure strategy with every similar similar combination of, of that hand. So trying to assume, or I think it's a mistake to assume looking at this hand that when the small blind three bets, ace of hearts, three of clubs, that they're playing every similar ace X offsuit hand the same way, or that even on the turn uh, that they're going to play every combination of, with the ace of hearts in it the same way any any good player is going to be mixing their strategies uh with similar hands because if you play any sort of hand the same or type of hand or hand class as as people call it now the same way you end up with too many of, of that sort of hand in the same range uh, so i think it's a mistake to in, infer that from this this one hand yeah, I, I got off track there. No, but you really said kind of what was on my mind. Um, you can, it's very hard to know, and I don't want to dwell on this one hand. There's a million hands that get played. But you can't know exactly, you can't judge someone's frequency of doing something in seeing that one hand. It doesn't suddenly go, oh, this person now overbets the turn with every single ace of heart. In his range. I mean, that would be a very dangerous assumption. Um, maybe it would work against, say, <laughs> maybe a bot or someone who wanted to play like a bot. But I don't. But I, Mr. Hansom's right. I don't think this is generally 
uh, a turnover bet, but it certainly could be. And so how do you evaluate that? Well, you've got to be, and this is kind of where I'm leading this all to, you've got to be, when you're evaluating poker hands, you've got to be a little bit more circumspect because people are trying things for one thing. They're not always following a chart. I know there's you players out there who have like an Excel sheet in front of you and, and some of you have them automated and you're popping up ranges and you know exactly what to do. Um, but even then you end up, even then, because of the very nature, the multiplicity of outcomes in a poker game tree, you still don't know what you're doing in certain spots. Um, so assuming something um, is very dangerous in terms of judging how a hand is played. And I didn't even quite want to stop stop there. But if you want to comment on that aspect of this, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I guess, you know, in, in looking at, at any particular hand, you can always sort of come up with hands that might be in the range that are better for that particular spot. But you're you're playing the particular spot right now and, and you have to make the most of it and then sort of be aware of the perception of your range on later hands. You're never playing an abstraction. You're, you're playing the current human opponent right now and, and you have to take into account all of their tendencies and, you know, the immediately prior hands and, and what they might be doing now. And then how their strategy is going to shift later on. It's it's not it's it's not an abstraction, right? So there's just so many different ways in which. In other words, even just talking now, we're exceeding the time we might have spent discussing it in the uh, <laughs> in the forum itself. And we're, and we're seeing and there's I can see so many different ways to discuss this, but I really actually don't. I don't want to make this a dissection of this hand because what I'm getting at is I think something more important. The game is fun because of the decisions we make. And when we forget that poker is all about the excitement, the thrill of making decisions and being potentially rewarded, and sometimes the terrible result where we make a great decision and we're not rewarded, in fact, we're punished, <laughs> that, is where, that is what made people fall in love with the game to begin with. And so, you know, I love Mr. Handsome coming in and offering his opinion, and that's great. I don't want him to go away. Sometimes he feels like, you know, people are going to be a little hard on him because he's hard on them. You know, he's very rhetorical and edgy and, you know, good with words and all that. But it's all missing the point that the player in this hand clearly made some assumptions about his opponent, had a reasonable candidate for something, which may not be a majority action, and decided this was the time to make an extremely large bet. And, you know, he's going to live and die with those results. But the joy of the game comes in making that decision quickly, because we're online, live, we have more time. Um, it's the same thing, right? And if you lose this joy and this freedom of not finding a way forward, I think that's where a lot of players actually get stuck, not in the X's and O's of the game, but in forgetting uh, what made the game exciting, exciting in the first place. So I hope the members of TBR <clears throat> don't get worked up over whether their lines were great or not, but that they had some sort of sense to them. And I think we can see whoever side you're on in this hand, that there was some sense going on. 
And the risk-reward was high. We, this hand was played for a full buy-in of 500 big blinds. And if you're not willing to take some chances, if that's never in your game, if you think that's not how money is made in poker, uh, I think you're, you're cutting off your development a little bit. So there's my little speech. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, it, even just if you are someone who enjoys looking at the solver, I think what you should understand is that the the solver, like so often I hear people say, the solver, the solver does X, the solver bets at this frequency, the solver plays this strategy, which I think is almost always wrong. But the only thing that a solver is doing is maximally realizing and denying equity and, and the same with its implied odds and, and reverse implied odds. And so the, the fun of, you know, the enjoyment of actual poker is that you are put in a position to do that against a real human player who has an unknown strategy that you're forced to interpret in real time. Um, if if all the game was, was, was memorizing charts and then going to find people who had tried to memorize their own charts and we just see who memorized the charts the best, I mean, I think people would lose interest with poker pretty quickly, but fortunately that's that's not what the game is fair enough well enough of that silliness boy <laughs> uh you can if you're if you're in the forums you can take that one on there what else what's else going on what's going on in the poker world that's got your attention uh, more solver stuff uh <laughs> oh, <Jesus. laughs> uh but it, it's it's a little fun um uh, so gto plus which is just like pio solver a solve is it's a solver but they uh added a new feature where you can play you can solve a, a board or you can solve a, a bunch of boards into a, a database like a, an aggregate in uh, pio and then you can play you can play against the solution so once you you've built that that board or, or spot or or subset of boards then you can you can play against the solution and it will give you your results you can also uh lock it to a certain board and then choose what sort of hands you want to be dealt so you can be dealt a specific type of hand you can just play uh just be dealt flush draws or just be dealt you know high card or just be dealt gut shots and then just drill that spot um so i think it's it's pretty fun and, and has some advantages uh or, or those specific advantages of, of picking a, a predetermined spot uh, compared to some of the other uh, software out there where you can play against a computer. Have you been doing it? Yeah, I've been uh, looking at spots that I'm, I think, uh, less accustomed to playing, having more experience live. So like four bet uh, pots, blind versus blind, uh, single raised pots. And just trying to get a feel for what is the uh, what's a reasonable strategy in those spots, and and what are maybe some of the incentives that I I hadn't considered in those spots, like blind versus blind. I was seeing uh, at least one of the things you have to take into account in any of these spots is that you're you're studying whatever specific abstraction you've solved. You're not you're not solving the the game, so to speak. I mean, there are always going to be more options available to your opponent than you might 
put into the the solution. But so looking at this this blind versus blind play, there was a lot more uh, out of position uh, three betting, bet three betting than I, I would have considered. And I think it's it's based on the fact that both players have really wide ranges on an, and on some of the more dynamic boards, there's an incentive for the imposition player to raise quite frequently with hands like over cards and draws. And then conversely, there's, there's an incentive for the, the out of position player, the small blind to do a lot of three betting frequently uh, with uh, hands that are, are sort of thin, but that need protection um, on, on a more dynamic board against the, uh, that are trying to negate the positional advantage of the big blind. You're talking about, say, like over pairs. Well, more top. So, like the one that comes to mind was like a like a ten nine five board, and then so it would do a lot of uh, bet three betting with like ten x, um, and then some draws, and then some of the smaller over pairs. Uh, not as much like with the hands like aces and kings that aren't as sensitive to overcard runouts. I, right. But I mean, it's not something I, I think that you would see very often in, say, like a, a cutoff versus button situation, just because in that spot, the button is is generally going to have a much narrower range that that both isn't going to raise as often and then also isn't going to have as as many of those over cards in the range that the out of position player needs to protect against. Right. But the big picture is that these spots for repolarization do exist. You're studying them, and apparently you get to practice with them sometimes on GTO Plus now. Right, yeah. I know it's it's just kind of cool to to pick a particular formation and then just play that 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 spot over and over again. Um and Look, I mean, one of the things that that you see, you have some options of where you can have it tell you what it how it mixes and what the EV of each action is, or you can uh, turn that off completely or you can have it only tell you when you like alert you when you take an action that is clearly worse than the other available options. But, you know, one of the things you see is how frequently there are spots where it will be, you know, maybe raise. 10% 10% call 40% and then fold the other 50 because they're all so close in EV. Uh, but it, it doesn't, when there are spots like that, that are all close one way or the other, if you have the, uh, the alerts turned off, it doesn't tell you if you, if you took a, a minority action. So yeah, I, I guess it's, it's one of those things where you need to be aware that, that if you try to play a pure strategy, uh, with a hand where you're raising too often with similar hands, if you don't have that option turned on where it shows you the EV and the frequency of each action or you don't look at it and you just you just play, you, it, it is possible to take away the, the wrong ideas. I think it's it's more useful if you maybe had those on and then thought about each spot and then looked to see what, you know, considered how you might mix or, or how uh, you would play or, or why you might deviate and then look and then see what it does and then go on from there rather than just playing a bunch of hands. It's not going to really teach you that much. Well, that sounds really good. That sounds better than I, better than it was originally pitched to me. Maybe I'll have to 
spend some time with this with the blue green machine <laughs> uh what else is what's going on in the poker world that's that's got your attention and uh, not just solver stuff um are you a big uh video guy do you watch doug polk religiously do you do you follow uh vlogs what is no. culture to you no okay no yeah I, I can't i can't sit still long enough for a video i could read i could read something but i i, I don't know for some reason uh video and vlogs are, are not my medium of choice. Yeah, I think they're they're mostly for, for people of low energy like myself who probably should be doing something else. <laughs> well, it's been great having you on. I uh, don't want to take up too much more of your time. Any any messages? Are you taking on students? Uh, any what should we talk about for our for our final five minutes? Well, do you wanna talk about the training site? Yeah, let's let's talk about. Well, you know, Greg, I'm. We have discussed opening or expanding my work uh, with you with some business management by Dean, um, because people need apparently more of a certain kind of training, uh, and I don't, I'm not talking about like another video site, but somewhere in between, there seems to me like more hands-on but more group work. I don't know if I'm describing it right, but there's there's a lot of people who are not connecting the A to the Z very well, and no one's doing it terribly well. And that's kind of what I've been proposing, kicking it around with Greg doing. Do you want to share your thoughts on air, you know, without giving away too much, what, what you think of what, what we do in the future? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the potential for a better learning approach is there learning essentially the the fundamentals of, of poker theory and construction uh, like a lot of the training materials uh, i mean like on run at once there's so many videos of, of people that just play and you watch them make decisions but there aren't very many people that or any people that I've seen on there that sort of lay out a, a fundamental approach to understanding the game and the way to construct and the incentives for strategy and, and building your own strategy. I, I don't see that. So that's like what I would like to, to provide. Um, and something that I think that people can't really get from a solver, you need sort of a baseline understanding of poker theory and the way that equity, you know, moves across streets in order to to understand and interpret any of the outputs that you're going to get from the more advanced software. So I think providing and trying to teach that understanding is is important and something that we can provide. Yeah, I'm thinking sort of leaning into this slowly. I know Dean is anxious to do it, but you now we have to. He's an anxious guy. He's got a lot of concerns. And, uh, but, uh, you know, and also if you're, if you're listening out there, for God's sakes, call in on his hotline. I mean, I'm not going to listen to it. I don't, I don't want to listen to your phone calls, but call in so someone can talk to Dean and, uh, and also rate the podcast. It just makes his day. You know, it's the, the sun doesn't really rise in Virginia or, you know, it's, it's a dark place and, and he needs help. So support our announcer because he's a good guy. Uh, but why, I don't know why we're talking about that. Um, let's. Uh, what I'm saying is, I think we're going to lean in with some seminars on this sort of very grounded 
at the very level, the way I teach poker from the start of what a bet is, a very grounded way of looking at the game. And Greg will provide some really good color for that, I think. Or you know, maybe that's not quite the way to describe it, but I think you know what I'm saying. Does that sound like something we should be doing soon? Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm excited to get started. All right. Well, that's that's what's up. And uh, as long as Dean doesn't kill me, we'll get that going first. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, uh, Mr. Porter, for coming on. Thank you, Mr. Handsome, for triggering some thoughts. And uh, with that, I will sign off. All right. Thanks, Chris. Really? An anxious guy? I am not an anxious guy. Uh, someone did tell me yesterday I used to be the nicest guy in the poker room, and then poker seems to have changed me into a surly, uh, discontented old man. And Virginia is not a dark place. It's a beautiful place next to almost heaven, West Virginia. And I don't live in either place. I live in Pennsylvania. But this is not about me. It's about the zoo hotline. Call the Poker Zoo Hotline, 410-775-6224, 410-775-6224. Check us out on iTunes. Leave a review. Give us a five-star rating. If you think it's a less-than-five-star podcast, Call on the Zoo Hotline and tell us why. Or feel free to leave a comment in one of the blog post comment sections. We'll be sure to get back to you. And with that, we'll see you next time.